Let's pray. Father, with great anticipation for what you can do with your word, with its power, we hope for transformation and and we anticipate that you will use it in every life and every mind and heart that is here for a particular need that they may have and for a particular need that they may have that they are not even aware of. So I pray that you would use your gospel in a saving way, in a profound way, and that the birth of Jesus would exalt the person, Jesus Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. there are many ways to present or preach the birth of Jesus. This is one of those things uh, every year as a pastor that Christmas approaches or Easter approaches and I'm like, man, I don't know if I've got another Easter sermon in me or I don't know if I could, how many different ways I could share the birth of Jesus. You know, after a certain number of years, you just kind of start saying the same thing over and over again and I thought to myself, I'm like, that's kind of the point, I think. It's the same gospel, same story, but there's different ways to present it. There's different approaches. Scripture gives us many different takes on this historically famous event, the birth of Jesus. And within each retelling of his birth, we have several different perspectives from several different people in Scripture. We could recount the events from Mary's perspective or from Joseph's perspective. We could recount the events of Jesus' birth from the shepherds or the angels or from King Herod or even from Jesus' perspective or from God the Father's perspective. All of those would be a different take on the same event and we could learn a lot of different information about the birth of Jesus from each of those perspectives. But ultimately... Every one of these stories, every one of these perspectives, every one of these ideas, and and even with all the differences in them, are recorded for us to produce one thing. They're all recorded for us, though they're different, and they share the same event, they're all intended for you to do one thing. Worship. Specifically to worship Jesus. So, What we're going to do today is, first we're going to cover the birth of Jesus from the perspective of the wise men. We'll do that briefly, and then we'll look at uh, what their worship, what the worship from the wise men reveals about our worship. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So first I think it'd be helpful to identify the star and to help us understand who the wise men are and how they're related to each other and what that means to the story of Jesus before we understand why they even ventured to meet Jesus. The wise men are the magi. So if you're 
have you know a religious background, been in church a long time, and you've heard the wise men, and you've always heard the three wise men. Scripture doesn't tell us how many there are, it just says the wise men. There are three gifts that the wise men bring, which is probably why we think of there being three wise men. But the wise men are magi, and you might have heard that phrase or that word too, the magi. Who are they? The same people. The wise men are the magi. And the magi had one primary occupation, and it was to study the stars to study what they called the celestial bodies. So they would study the heavens at night. And so they're like the, you know, the, the scientists, the astronomers of the day. And so what scripture calls a star is something that the magi were very in tune with. They were paying attention to the sky. They were paying attention to the way the planets and the stars moved. They were recording things. And what we... What scripture calls a star was probably and most likely a combination of a few things happening at once. It's probable that it was two planets, Jupiter and Venus, kind of coalescing with a constellation called the constellation of Leo. And so this, this combination of events, these, these two planets and this constellation coming together would have uh, been perceived from Earth as like kind of a massive bright star. And, and it would have rose, and some scientists have done some research, and if, if you look at you know, the first couple years AD, 2, 3 AD, around that time, around the time Jesus was born, which we believe is about 4 AD, it makes sense uh, astronomically that these planets and the constellation would have aligned, rising in the east and moving towards the south, towards Jerusalem, where they would have went. And so it is likely that that's what's actually happening, the, you know, Jupiter and Venus coalescing with this constellation of Leo. And so before I go on anymore with any astronomy or science or anything, I just want to say something. If that is true, if that's what happened, that is just kind of like a, a, a combination of planets kind of just come together, it kind of steals from the miraculous supernatural work of God a little bit. Doesn't it make you feel that way? Like I've heard um, non-Christian scientists try to explain like the 10 plagues in Egypt. Like, oh, well, the Nile turned red because there was this event that happened around the time. And it's like not supernatural. Like God wasn't involved. It wasn't God. It was just happened to be this weird timing with science or whatever. And people can explain away God's miracles. And so what I want to say, though, is that even if this star, it could have been one of two things. It could have been this combination of Venus and Jupiter kind of, you know, uh, mashing up with the constellation of Leo, creating this bright looking star. Or God was just like, boom, star. And he's just, I'm going to make you move here and then make you move here because I'm God and I can do whatever I want. And to announce the birth of my son, I'm going to make this star abundantly clear. And it's just supernatural, miraculous just so the magi and the wise, men, or the wise men and the shepherds and whoever else would come see my gift, my son. Regardless of what it really is, whether it is just this combination of stars and planets or if it's God just throwing a star in the sky for you know, a couple of weeks, whatever the event, it is still a sovereign God orchestrating the combination of celestial events in order to announce the birth of his son. And that is because that's what scripture tells us. So whether it's just astronomy, it's like a cool astronomical event, or if it's God's miraculous supernatural 
put, supernaturally putting a star in the sky. Either way, God is sovereign over it and has orchestrated it for the purpose of announcing the birth of his son. So, with this idea of the Magi, something about the Magi is very important to know. This idea that they are students of the stars. One of the things that they would have been attentive to is, that, is the constellations, right? And what the constellations meant. Constellations, especially in the time before Jesus' birth, was a, a, a big field of study. And people, you know, would astronomers would kind of like look at uh, constellations and, and, you know, make figures out of them and name them. And they all had different meanings and they're all attributed to different groups of people. Well, the constellation of Leo was known as the sign of the tribe of Judah, which happens to be the tribe from which Jesus is born. And so when the Magi see Venus and Jupiter come together with the constellation of Leo, their interpretation of that is, this is the sign of Judah. This is the sign that from Judah comes the Messiah. The Messiah is here. Let's follow the star. This very well could have been their perspective. And so... The story, though, that we hear or that we read about the Magi, these wise men, is not so much about science and it's not really about astronomy. It is about the very thing that these wise men sought out to do. It was not just to study the stars. It was not just to follow this weird combination of stars in the sky. It was to do one thing, and they expressed it at the end of verse 2. We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. What King Herod does is the opposite. He perverts the idea of worship. He lied about wanting to worship Jesus, right? He says uh, later on in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was born and told them a lie. In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written, and Herod some of the wise men and secretly ascertained from them at what time the star appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring word to me. Why? That I too may come and worship him. Now that's a lie because Herod's agenda was to kill Jesus because Jesus, or the Messiah, the newborn king of the Jews, Herod's the king of the Jews. And now there's this newborn Messiah who's supposed to be the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, that's a threat to my throne. Let's kill him. And so what Herod does is he goes on this massive killing spree and starts killing everybody's firstborn or, or all the newborn baby boys. Can you imagine being a parent in Bethlehem or anywhere in Jerusalem and you hear that the king not just like some crazy dude. You have no one to appeal to. You can't go to the king and be like, king, 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 someone's killing our babies. And he goes, oh, this is terrible. I ought to stop it and I have the authority and power to do so. When the guy who's in charge of everything decides that your baby boy is going to die, can you imagine the horror that would fill you as a parent? Just because he might, just, just because he might be the Messiah, which means all he did was kill a ton of baby boys that were not the Messiah. So they died for no reason. It shows you the depravity of Herod and obviously a heart that is not intending to worship Jesus. 
And what the wise men then reveal is the, is the opposite, the contrary to Herod. They reveal what God wants and what God wanted of them and what God wants from us, worship. So the point is that whatever would be your disposition about the coming Messiah would ultimately be revealed when he finally arrived, which Herod revealed his heart. When Jesus shows up, Herod's heart pours forth. Let's kill all the babies because I have to protect my legacy and my throne. And what the wise men reveal is a heart of worship, where their heart and mind about God is really at. The Messiah is here. Let's worship him. So the application for us is the same. How we respond to the message that God has delivered to us a king, a lord, and a savior, it reveals, how we respond reveals whether we have within us a heart of rejection or a heart of worship. And let's be honest, there are only those two hearts. Those are only, they're the only two perspectives you can have to the gospel message is rejection or worship. You either receive it or you reject it. There is no in-between. If you're in-between, if you're in this kind of like zone of like, yeah, I don't really, I don't reject the gospel, but I'm just not there yet. That is a choice of rejection. To not receive the gospel is to reject the gospel. Okay, and so there isn't like, my, my point in saying that is there isn't this like place this limbo in the middle where like if you died today you could say you know god I, I just wasn't really totally sure about the gospel i wasn't rejecting you i just wasn't really on board yet i guess maybe i didn't understand it or or wasn't really there yet I just wasn't there in my life yet you know i wasn't really ready to accept you or believe you or understand the gospel and i had a bunch of other things going on i was going to get to it you know i know it's probably important i just i don't know he's not going to go eh, you okay sure whatever you can like come to heaven half of the time you know, I, that wouldn't work. It's all or nothing. It's righteousness or it's sin. And the only way to have righteousness is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. So, to re, so there's either a heart of rejection to the gospel or a heart of reception to the gospel. And the heart of reception is a heart of worship. Whichever heart we have will shine out of us. It will come out of you. And it will be revealed in how we physically, emotionally, mentally, and behaviorally respond to the gospel message that God has sent to us, his son, Jesus, born as a baby boy, living a perfect life to die on a cross for our sins. Meaning those who truly believe the gospel message, those who truly believe that Jesus is the eternal God, born into human flesh, so to be our Savior by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, those who believe this are saved. And what the Magi reveal is that the only appropriate response to this gospel is to worship him. And my point is that whatever is in your heart is going to come out of you. It's going to be revealed. It's going to show. If it's a heart of rejection, it's going to show up in your life. If it's a heart of reception, it's going to show up in your life. I, one of the biggest arguments I hear about kind of anti-Christian argument, anti-gospel argument is, well, I look at Christians and the way they live and it just, I have no, why would I want to be like them? The way that people who claim to be Christians behave is completely irrelevant to the fact that Jesus died for your sins. 
So even if every Christian in the world behaved poorly after being saved, it does not negate the power of the gospel. But I would say, if every Christian wasn't living like a Christian, I would wonder if they're Christians, right? I think what a lot of people see is people who say they're Christians and maybe aren't. And also what they see is a lot of people who are Christians and guess what? We're sinners and we fail. And that's exactly why we need Jesus. We never claim to be perfect. And so that's, you know, I hear that argument a lot as a kind of an anti-Christian, anti-gospel perspective, like the way that Christians behave makes me not want to be one. I'm, my argument to those people is then be one and be a better one. Because that's just not an excuse because the reality is the Bible is very clear. Regardless of how we behave, this is true. Without Jesus, you go to hell. I know that's a harsh and heavy message to hear, but it's a reality this is why Christmas exists. This is why we, have, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Because God said, you can't do it. You need me. Here is the greatest gift you could possibly receive. Myself, in my son, in the human flesh. To be your savior. To live a perfect life. To die a death that you deserve to die because you're not good enough. That's all of us. And John 1 tells us, to all who receive him, who receive this message, who believe this truth, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, it says, to all who receive him, who believe in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to summarize that verse for you. Believe the gospel and you're saved. And what then comes out of the saved person is worship. Because genuine believers genuinely love Jesus and genuinely worship him. And those who reject the gospel can't, don't want to, can't worship him because they don't love him. And so what I want to do now is just do two things, address two, two points. If worship is the only appropriate response to the birth of our Savior and his gospel message of salvation... If worship is the only appropriate response, then what does worship look like? like what, when I say worship, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Like, in my mind, it's two things. It's singing, singing worship songs to Jesus, so it's church. Going to church is worship. Or it's like building an idol and laying down before it and going, oh, and like bowing down and there's incense, you know, whatever. Candles, kind of like a seance or something. Like, and to my mind, that's the idea of worship. So what does worship look like in real life? In, your, in 2021, soon to be 2022, for us modern people, what does worship look like? And how do we do it? So I'm going to get really fundamental here. Just, this isn't gonna, I don't want to talk about all the millions of different ways we could express worship. I want to talk about two fundamental core ideas that I think applies to all the ways in which we worship. So worship is two things. Worship is two things. Number one, worship is spiritual. This is most important to address first. This is the most fundamental reality about what worship is. Worship is spiritual. Before Jesus arrived, the idea of worship was mostly physical. There were like sacrifices and rituals and they would do these kinds of like man 
centered performances and some of these things were according to God's commands in scripture and some of them were just man-made ideas that they thought helped them obey God. Like the Pharisees, there are like 613 laws in scripture and then the Pharisees added like a ton more laws because they were like, well, if we're going to obey this law from God, let's create like 10 other laws that make sure we don't even come close to obeying this law. So you can't, you can't work on the Sabbath. That's one of God's laws. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. So then the Pharisees created another law. Like, all right, well, that means you can't plow. One of the jobs was plowing. So if you can't plow, just to avoid anything appearing or having any appearance of work, you also can't scoot a chair on the Sabbath. Because if you do, the legs on the ground will move the dirt, and that's technically plowing. So you can't do that. On the Sabbath. That's a man-made law. Just to give you an idea how ridiculous these man-made laws were that they tried to implement in order to keep people from disobeying God's commands. And the problem, that, the problem they had and, and the, the, the idea that they really missed was that God was not after the action. God was not after the performance. God was not after the physical function of the law. God was after the heart. Why did God not want them to, to do anything on the Sabbath? Because he wanted them to worship him on the Sabbath, to rest like he rested, and to spend their rest in him. It wasn't to be like technical, like, oh, you moved a chair, technically that's plowing, you die. Like, that's not God's heart. His heart is that he wants your heart. And so this idea that of worship in the first century, or before Jesus, and all the centuries before, started to really become this man-made performance. And let's be honest, it still exists heavily today. But once Jesus shows up, he challenges the world's idea and the religious idea of what worship is. In John 4, 24, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he counters this modern ideal of worship, and he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't say anything about performance. He doesn't say anything about physical worship. He doesn't say anything about sacrifices or burnt offerings or performing or ceremonies or anything like that. He just says you have to worship him in spirit and in truth, meaning your, your, your worship has to come from the truth of God's word, has to be genuine worship to the true God based on truth. And it has to be in here, inside, in your heart, in your spirit. It's your spirit that worships, not your physical body. If your physical body's worshiping, that's an expression that comes from within. And that's the point that Jesus is getting to. Real worship comes from the heart. It comes from within. He reveals that God is not looking for religious activity. He isn't, look, he isn't looking for heartless religion or reciting verses or singing songs out of duty or anything that lacks genuine love for him. Instead, what God desires is your heart. He desires your love. What God ultimately desires is your desire for him. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So I'm going to read it from a different translation. The Living Bible Translation says it like this. 
And I like the way he says it because it's very succinct, very easy way to understand it. This is what Hosea 6.6 6 says in uh, the Living Bible Translation. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. Worship that is expressed in physical activity, like, say, singing, is only true worship when the heart of passion for Jesus is the source of that activity. Meaning real worship starts in the heart. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Everything in here will come out. Whether it's your words or your actions or your expressions, even your, your, your body language, Okay, you can tell what mood somebody is in just by the way they're standing. You ever talk to someone and they're like this? And they're like looking off into space and they're like totally super disinterested. And like their, their body language and their facial expressions is telling you, will you shut up and be done talking please so I can move on? Does that make you feel loved and comfortable? No? Right? If I do that to you, tell me. Like, Pastor Mark, you're not making me feel loved or comfortable. Can you please pay attention? Do that. Go ahead. Call me out. I don't care. Okay? Our body language expresses what's inside of us, right? Have you ever talked to someone and they look at you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like nodding with you and their eyes are open and they're like, uh-huh. And they're like verbally affirming everything you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. And they like laugh at everything you say, right? Like that person is so engaged with you and you're like, their body language is showing you something. They're showing you what's inside. And what's inside is, I love listening to you talk. Or, man, I hate listening to you talk, Right? Our body language, our, our words, where our eyes go, our, the way we use our hands, everything expresses what's on the inside. What's inside of you, what's in your heart, what's going on in your mind is going to come out eventually. And a lot of us try to hide what's going on in here. And we put on a mask that looks like something that we really aren't. Right? You ever ask somebody, how's it going? They're like, good. And they're not good. I saw a commercial once. You guys probably saw this commercial. I think it was a Super Bowl commercial years ago. And this guy sits down at a bar, and the guy next to him goes, he's just got a beer there, and he's just chilling. He's like, how's it going? He's like, well, okay, so it started a couple of weeks ago, and, and he just starts telling his like, life story to this guy, and he's like, all I ask you is, how's it going? You're supposed to say, you know, good. And then the commercial ends with another guy sits down next to the same guy and goes, how's it going? He's like, don't ask him that, right? We don't really tell people what's going on. We put on a mask. You know, obviously there's an appropriate time to share the depths of your heart with people, right? Not in passing at the mall. You don't go, how's it going? You're like, actually, I want to tell you how my life is going. Like, that's a little awkward. But ultimately, we don't really, you know, tell people what's going on in our life. We kind of cover it up. And we put on this mask and this facade and we try to hide what's really going on in here and up here. Because we want to look like real worshipers. We want to look like we have a good attitude. We don't, though. And as after, you know, Jesus said, the deepest seed will find the light of day, like ultimately, that's going to have to come out somehow. So what's not important is that you show up on Sunday morning and put your hands in the air and sing songs with us. That means nothing. What matters is what's in here and what's up here. It will come out. I 
I believe that as much as the church today is filled with true worshipers, so also it is filled with a lot of false worshipers. Like many people come to church out of duty, feeling like their attendance is required by God and that in doing so they have fulfilled their duty and they have appeased God and or pleased God, but that is one of the most anti-gospel perspectives that we can have. The gospel is literally a declaration that you cannot appease God with your actions or your religious activity. The gospel declares that you are not enough. You're not good enough. You're a sinner. I am a sinner. We're all sinners. We have zero good in us. Zero. None. And I mean none. Zero percent. The way Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 describes it is you were dead in your sins. Jesus didn't save you from drowning in a pool. You were at the bottom of the pool, dead for years. And he went in the pool and brought you out of the pool and breathed life into you. That's the difference. You don't need to just accept like, yeah, you know, maybe I should receive Jesus and just kind of like change my life a little bit. No, 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 no. You are dead in your sins. I was dead in my sins. And even though I now have Christ in me, and he has breathed life into me, and I now can see things from his perspective, and I now have his Holy Spirit in me, just like every believer in this room does, we're still not perfect, which speaks to my earlier point that we're, sometimes we're not the best example of what it means to be a Christian. But it doesn't change the fact that we were dead and now we're alive. How many dead people do you know who choose on their own volition to come back to life? I know zero. How many dead people in Scripture on their own volition chose to come back to life? One. And his name was Jesus. And he's the only one who has that power. He said... No one takes my life from me. I give it up at my own will, and I will take it up, meaning bring it back to life, when I choose. He's the only one who has the power to do that because he's God. The rest of us, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, and being dead, we have no power on our own to bring ourselves back to life. You are not good enough. You just aren't. I'm not good enough. I think as Christians, if you're a believer, you're like, yeah, I know this. Not only, have I, not only do I know this because I've heard it preached my entire life, but I also know it in my own life experience that I see, and I think you guys would probably agree, if you're honest with yourself at least, you would agree because I think this is true of me. I see the wickedness of my sinful nature come to light so frequently it scares me. And it comes so natural to me so easily and so quickly, it rises up like boom. Last night I told my kids, my wife and I, we just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary last night and we went out and we kept our kids at home. And I told them when we left, I said, when I come home, because you know, Holly put out a bunch of food for them, I said, I want this kitchen cleaned up. And I know what's going to happen, boys. I'm going to go and I'm going to come home and it's not going to be clean. And you know what you're going to tell me? I didn't hear you say that. So I'm telling you now. I know you're hearing me. 
you're going to have this cleaned up when I get back. They're like, okay. I come back, guess what? <laughs> it's not clean. And guess what? I didn't hear you say that. I'm like, boys, ah! you know, I just went into Hulk mode. And I yelled at my children. I'm just being honest with you. I yelled at my kids. I mean, I didn't like really raise my voice, but I was pretty harsh with them. I was like, I told you, da 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 da. And then, like, 10 minutes later, you know, we put them to bed, and I'm like, they're in bed. And instantly, the moment they're in bed, I miss my children, and all I want to do is hug them. And I'm like, oh, I'm such a terrible dad. <laughs> so I go back down to the room, like, hey, guys, um, you're not excused for disobeying me, but uh, I was wrong. I, I should not have, like, freaked out at you. I'm sorry. I will be better. I'll try to be better. I probably won't be better, but I'm going to try. <laughs> and I think that goes a long way with your children. Just as a side note on parenting. I think that goes a long way with your children. You don't excuse their sin because you sin too, but you, I think it's good to show your kids that you also fail. And so I was honest with them. And my point in sharing that story is to show you that, like, the moment I walked in the door, I saw all their, you know, the kitchen was just, like, littered with everything I told them to clean up. And I was instantly like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I got so angry so fast. And I was just, oh. And then I, it just dawns on me. I'm like, that's, that's who I am without Jesus. That's who I am when I'm not walking in the Spirit. That's who I am when I'm not worshiping. That's who I am in my natural sinful state. That's the inclination of my sinful nature. And that's just one example in my life. I have a million more. And I'm sure you do too. It's so easy to resort back to who we were, to live in the dead nature of our sinful selves. That's who we are. That is why the gospel message that's why the Christmas story is so profound. God gave you a way out. He put a pinch hitter in for you. He gave you a solution, an answer. He gave you life in Jesus Christ. He gave you the greatest gift of all, himself in his son, Jesus, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he becomes our savior. And that's the gospel message. That only Jesus can appease God. You can't. Not by yourself. Not your actions. Going to church. Being religious. Praying a lot. I talked to a woman the other day. Last night, actually, we were at the store. And this woman starts sharing her life story with me. She worked at the store. And she's kind of just sharing, like, her mom. She lost her mom last year. It's her first Christmas without her mom. Her brother got cancer. And she's, like, sharing her whole life story. That's what happens when you tell someone you're a pastor. <laughs> and they're like, oh, let me tell you everything I'm struggling with right now. And it was actually a very, very wonderful conversation with her. And she said to me that when her mom had passed away, that they went into her room and they'd found 40 rosaries. And she looks at me and she goes, we found 40 rosaries. And I was like, she looks at me like, why aren't you surprised? I said, and she repeats it, I said, 40 rosaries. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be surprised. Whoa! Like, because <laughs> to me, I'm going, so you're telling me that your mother was religious. That's it. That's all I'm hearing. And I don't know her mom. I can't make any presumptions about whether her mom was saved or not. I have no idea. That's not my point. My point is that people perceive that like this person's in heaven because they're religious, 
because they went to church or because they prayed the rosary or because, you know, they, they do these religious activities and it's, it's called saved or they're called being a Christian. And, and I'm here to say that that's not the gospel. It never has been. In fact, the gospel came to destroy that very perspective because in the first century and long before that, that's all I did. Rituals and ceremonies and reciting things and saying the right prayers over and over again and killing animals and sacrificing them and having offerings done and all those things. And God's like, that's not what I'm after. I'm after your heart. And your heart isn't good enough without Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is desperately wicked. Your heart is desperate for sin. That's the gospel message. That you can't get saved on your own. You can't get saved by being good. You, you, just because, if, if you go to church, even if it's occasionally or every week, it doesn't matter. Doing religious things doesn't get you saved. It doesn't buy you any favor with God. It doesn't appease God's wrath and anger over you because of your sin. The only thing that works is Jesus. He is the only perfect one. He's the only one who can appease God because he's perfect. And since we're not perfect, we cannot please God or appease God or or or, or appease his wrath and anger over us and our sin. So our only fitting response is to put our faith in Jesus as our substitute. His perfection becomes our perfection when we trust in him for salvation. His death becomes our death. The death we deserve to die, he has now died for us when we believe in him. And now we have life in Christ, which means a different life today, but ultimately what it means is eternal life in his presence forever of joy. Receive it or reject it. Those are your only two choices. And if you choose to not make a choice, that's a choice. And that choice is a rejection. To not receive it is to reject it. Even if it's this kind of like soft, like, mm, I don't know, that's a decision to not decide to believe in the gospel. So if the gospel says that we are not enough to get saved, then what makes us think that we are enough when we perform religious fake worship. I mean, I'm talking about non-believers at this point. What about believers, Christians, who go to church all the time, stand here, worship, sing, give money to the church, do all kinds of things, pray, and it's just fake. It's just like you're doing it because you're supposed to, and you're Christian, and you want to, and you know you're supposed to want to, and you kind of want to, but you know that most of your heart is just really not there. Now, I get it. There are seasons where that happens in our lives. I've been there myself. I shared this story a long time ago um, when uh, Shane Jones and I and a couple other guys went to uh, a conference in the cities. It was a worship conference. Thousands of men, pastors and elders, in this huge, uh, in the conference center in downtown Minneapolis, all worshiping Jesus together. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have never felt like not worshiping more in my life. There was 0% in me that wanted to worship and that was massively concerning to me. So I'm like, this should be a great opportunity for me to worship and I just didn't want to. I told Shane, Shane goes, you know what you should do? Just sit. Don't worship, don't sing, don't fake it. Just receive it, absorb it, listen. I was like, okay. So I sat down and it brought me to tears. And God revealed so much. It just, it allowed me to just stop trying to perform for God. It allowed me to sit down and go, all right, God, this is not a performance issue. This is a heart issue. 
There's something in here that's not right in me right now. And God used shame to open it up for me. And I sat there and listened to people worship around me. I didn't have to perform for God. And I believe that that moment where I'm sitting there, not worshiping, not singing, tons of people could have been looking at me like, pagan? You know, like, oh, how dare you not stand and worship with us? Or I'm sure no one thought that. But they could have, you know, especially people who are into just the religious action could have easily thought that of me. But I think God was looking at me going, that's what I wanted. I want you to sit down, shut your mouth, and just check your heart. Because you've got a heart issue going on. Don't pretend to perform for me. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't do you any good. Why fake it? That whole idea of fake it till you make it, that's garbage. That doesn't work, in, it, that doesn't work with Jesus. It doesn't work with God. It might work in your business world, but it doesn't work with the gospel. God is after your heart. Worship starts in here. Worship is spiritual. And once it becomes a spiritual act that then starts to pour out of you into physical acts, then the singing and the giving and the praying and the reading and the studying and, the, and all the different things you do in life that's worship becomes real. And as you live your Christian life, we all know what that feels like. That reality of worship goes up and down, right? It's like a roller coaster. We have those days where you're like I was. I feel like my worship's fake. You're down here. God's like, sit down, shut up, listen to me. Let's get a heart check going first. And then there are those seasons where it's like, man, everything in my life just feels so Christ-centered and full and joyful and I'm at peace and I love to worship him in everything. And you write that check, that giving check, and you're like, oh, this is such a joy to my soul. You meet people, meet and greet, and you're like, oh, I love meeting God's people. I'm just loving this, this atmosphere and this fellowship and this unity. And you pray and your prayers are just like so rich and pure and full. And it feels like you're really connecting with Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And you come to church on Sunday morning and you raise your hands and you are just lost in praise and worship to Jesus. And, and, and you read the word and you're like, oh, it's just speaking to me and it's like filling me and I'm getting so much out of it. And, and you go to Bible study and you're like, oh, the word is just saturated in my heart. You have those seasons. Those are the best. And everything in between. The Christian life is a journey. It's weird and crazy and sometimes confusing. And we have a guide, though. And you know what else we have? Each other. You can't do it on your own. But worship will come out of you if worship is in your heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Number two. Worship is everything. What I mean is that worship is a part of everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, or, you know what, forget eating and drinking, whatever you do, everything. That's everything. Okay, Paul's including everything. Eating, drinking, doesn't matter. Whatever you do. Regardless of the activity. Nothing in the world is excluded from this verse. Whatever it is you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
Every activity, every thought, every movement, every idea, every word we speak, every day at work, every interaction with your spouse, every time you discipline your children, every game you play or every game that you watch, every time you're on the phone, every, any time or every time you do anything at all, from waking up in the morning to pouring your coffee to going to bed at night, it is all meant to be worship. Personally, if you ask me, that sounds pretty exhausting. Like, gosh, not only do I have to do all those things, I still have to get up and take a shower and make my coffee and kiss my wife and say bye to my children and go to work and do my job and have a lunch. Oh, forgot to pack my lunch. Oh, yeah, i got to pack my lunch before I go to work, pack my lunch, eat my lunch, talk to my boss, bear with my boss, bear with the people I work with, have all these relationships while I'm at work, and then come home to my family, my wife's home, my kids are home, we make dinner, we have dinner, we clean up after dinner, we clean the house, we do our chores, our kids got to do homework, and then they go to bed, and then I have to spend time with my spouse, and then only that, and then we got things we got to work out, and then I finally, you know, have to go to bed and get up in the morning and do it all over again. Oh my goodness, life is exhausting. Right? I hope you feel that way, because I do, and it makes me feel better if you do too. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I don't think that that mentality is healthy. I think it's real. I think it's realistic. That is real. That's life. But if I say to you, now all that stuff that you're already doing also has to become worship. Every aspect of it. Every little detail of your day that I just described now has to become worship. Doesn't that be add? To me, it sounds like you're adding a burden to my life. Now you're adding something to everything I do. It's not just one more event in the middle of the day that you've added. You've now on, you've added on top of every activity this idea of worship. So this is why it's important to understand what worship is. And this is what makes the previous point so important, right? That worship is spiritual. Because what I don't mean is before you get in your car to drive to work, you have to bow down on your knees and say a prayer to Jesus before you get in the car. And then once you get in the car and then you sit down and you have to, before you start the car, okay, Lord, please, before you start this car, will you please start it? And you have to do like this worship and performance before everything, before you take a sip of coffee. Lord Jesus, thank you for this coffee. Lord Jesus, thank you for this coffee. You know, you get exhausted, right? Like, it's just constant. Like, that's not... That's not the expectation that I'm setting. And I don't think that's the expectation that God is setting because that's an outward expression. It's a physical activity. And if we live that way, eventually you just don't have it in you to mean it every time. It'll become fake to the point where it's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? And you don't really mean it because you're just tired of saying it. And you've done it so many times it becomes a rote activity that has no meaning to you. And this is why the previous point that worship is spiritual is so important because worship is internal. It's in the heart and it will show up in a lot of different ways. It'll show up at work when instead of bearing with your boss, you love your boss, even if you don't like them. And you don't bear with your coworkers, you are gracious to them and understanding and patient and you listen and you wonder, you know, this person is viciously mean to me every day. They must need love. And guess what? I have the greatest lover of all eternity in my heart and I have been told to be the person who gives them that love. What a great opportunity. That's worship. Or you go home to your kids 
And even though you told them to clean up, (laughs) and even though you told them you knew that they would say they didn't hear you, you walk in the door, and instead of losing your mind at them, you say, children, I love you. Now clean up. (laughs) (laughs) Or I will, no. Um, That's worship. The right attitude, the right heart. What comes out of you reveals what's inside you. I mean, you guys, we know this. this isn't like news to you. We all know that what's inside comes out. Like people who are passive aggressive, I mean, I can spot it. You can spot it a mile away, that passive aggressive nature. You see that passive aggressiveness come out, and you're just like, oh, what's going on in there, right? What's going on in their head or in their heart? And what do we do? Then we go, oh, that was mean. And you go home, and you're like, oh, my gosh, spouse, you should hear this person said this to me. Oh, I know they said this to me the other day. I know they're so mean. Oh, I can't stand them. Oh, my gosh, why do they go to our church? They're not even Christians. You know, like, that's how we, that's how we treat people, right? Instead of being like, this person, if they're acting passive-aggressive passive, ag- passive to me, or whatever, however, they're, maybe they're just straight-up mean. Maybe they're just like, you're a jerk and I don't like you. And you're like, wow, that was rude. Okay, at least I know how you feel, right? Forward with your feelings. Regardless of how they're behaving, you see those things. Those are opportunities for worship. Opportunities to worship Jesus by saying, Jesus, this person needs you, and I have you, even if they're a Christian, and they already have you, help me encourage them in their faith. Help me strengthen them. Help me meet with them. Help me understand them. Help me love them. Help me bless them. Help me carry some of their burden. Like it says in Galatians 6, that that love, genuine love, is to bear one another's burdens. Or like Paul says in Romans 1, 11, and 12, to encourage them in their faith with some spiritual gift that I have. That is worship. Sipping your coffee can be worship. John Piper wrote a book. Um, it's a little devotional book, and he used 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he, the title of the short chapter was Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And it was a wonderful little couple pages on how something so simple as drinking orange juice can become this profound experience of worship without it becoming this exhausting burden that you have to bear every time you take a sip. It's just this idea that you are grateful for the sustenance. That's one avenue. You could take it even further. These oranges or these coffee beans came from somewhere. God, you have ordained some worker in some field in some country, probably not close to Wisconsin, because they don't grow oranges here, I'm pretty sure. To, to grow these beans or these oranges and, and then to, to nourish them. And you, God, provided the rain for these trees to grow these plants. And these plants provided fruit and the fruit that someone that you have ordained to be in that place to pick them. And then you have also orchestrated not only the picking but the placement of the very orange that I will receive in this glass of orange juice. Or the very beans that I'm going to drink in this coffee. And then you have also developed businesses who, who drive trucks, who carry the product from one place to another. And you have also built and, des- and designed and, and orchestrated and sovereignly ordained the, the, the supermarket that carries the product that I'm buying and the clerk who sold it to me and checked it out and the whole experience is you sovereignly ordaining this very moment of pleasure and you take that sip of coffee and that's worship. Now that's a lot to think about with every sip. I don't genuinely believe that we should have to go through that thought process 
But there are many times that I'm drinking my coffee and, I'm, and that idea, just a general idea, goes through my mind and I'm just grateful to God. It's not some big extravagant thing. It just happens here in my heart and in my head and it's a moment. It's a moment like that. That's it. Worship is everything. Genuine worship is part of everything we do, from how you use your phone to how you treat your wife to how you care for your vehicle is worship. It's all an act of worship to God because all of our activity in life is a product of how we think and what we think about God and how we feel about God will come out of our lives in the way that we think, talk, and act towards others and toward God and to ourselves. The point is that worship is not that we would, the point of worship is not that we would appeal to God or appease God or please God with our proper actions and good behavior. The Magi did not search for Jesus because it was their duty, but because their hearts were filled with joy in God's gift of salvation and the coming Messiah and the only proper response to a heart of joy in God is a heart of worship. And a heart of worship will pour out of you into actions of worship, like trekking across the entire known world to find the newborn Messiah. That's worship. And we can't drive 10 miles in snow. Not telling you to drive stupid in snow, just saying. <laughs> a heart that is filled with joy in God and worship of Jesus will turn into a life that finds the joy of Jesus in everything. From drinking coffee to opening Christmas presents on Christmas morning, it is all meant to be a means by which we sacrifice our own desires for him to become our desire, and when he becomes our greatest desire, we are most pleased. We worship, we're called to worship, we're supposed to worship, not because we have to, not because we're commanded to, because we want to. That's what worship is. Real worship is worship that you want to do. Whether it's singing songs on Sunday morning or giving to some organization or serving your church or your community or whatever you do. God punished the Israelites in Deuteronomy when they did exactly what he said but they didn't do it out of joy. They didn't want to do it. Because they didn't want to do it, God disciplined them. God isn't after your functional obedience. He isn't after acts of service. He's after a heart that loves him. And hearts that love him will physically worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we pray that our worship would be genuine. And Lord, what we know, what we all know, is we all fake worship sometimes. We know we're guilty of it. But we do submit that to you as a request that you would create in us genuine hearts of joyful worship that love you and that then express our love in all the things that we do, that they would all become ways in which we worship you. It's not about our activity. It's not about how many times we go to church or how many times we do the right act action or say the right thing. It is about what's going on in our hearts. And you know our hearts. 
We can't hide them from you. So help us to stop trying to hide them from you and help us to just be real and create in us hearts of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.